Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumboldt.org. Has anybody else been listening to Christmas music more than usual this year? Or is it just me? I mean, I'm at home, I want to listen to the Christmas classics. I'm, you know, in my car, even at work, kind of playing in the background. It's all this Christmas music kind of takes me back to Christmases of long ago when things were more simple, more comfortable, more normal, right? There's something about the Christmas songs that kind of get us in that, in that spirit of Christmas. And, and, and I love that. There's nothing wrong with that. But let's face it, some of those songs that we hear and sing around Christmas just won't cut it this year, right? I mean, the, the, the sentimentality is okay, but we need something more meaningful, uh, more, more deeper. We need more than just jingle bells, holly jolly Christmas, and chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Uh, we, we need more than that. We need more depth. We need lyrics like, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, like we sang today. We need a lyric like, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. We need a song like, God rest ye merry gentlemen, which just so happens to be the song at the beginning of the Grinch movie, if you have yet, yet to see it. But consider this song, the, the first verse says, God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. That's a song we don't hear or sing very often at Christmas, but it's, it's a truth that we desperately need. And it's not, it's not just a Christmas song. The, the truth of this song is found right from the scriptures. In 1 John chapter 3, uh, verse 8, John writes, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, to save us all from Satan's power. You see, Jesus, Jesus was born into a war zone. Back in Matthew's gospel, you may recall, Jesus had been born, and King Herod was furious. He was jealous. He was in a rage. And we see in Matthew 2.16 how he ordered this horrific massacre of all these baby boys in Bethlehem. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So that's what was going on here on the earth, on the ground level. And yet up in heaven, we see this revelation from John. In Revelation 12, verse 4, it says, His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So here's this, this gruesome picture in heaven of this dragon crouching down low, ready to devour this baby that was born. Now in Revelation 12, verse 17, we see what happens to this dragon. 
the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so notice the parallels here. Herod became furious. The dragon became furious. They were working in tandem here to make war. And if he couldn't get to the baby, he's coming after us. He's coming after you and me. And so Christmas is about the fulfillment of a promise that was made all the way back in Genesis. Genesis chapter three says, I will put enmity, God says, between you, the snake, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So here we see the prophecy of the Messiah who would come and would kill, would destroy the works of the devil. Now, how would he do that? Well, he came, Jesus, with a mission. And we see his mission in his inaugural sermon in Luke chapter four, verse 18. Jesus comes into the synagogue and he takes the scroll that was handed to him and from Isaiah 61 reads these words. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And so this is why Jesus came. This was his mission. He came to set us free from our sin, to save us all from Satan's power. So if you're new with us, we have been in a series called Who Needs Christmas? And the answer is that all of us need Christmas. All of us need the hope that only Jesus can bring. And and I realize, I wanna be honest with you, this year has been difficult in, in many different ways, but one of them is this. We have an enemy who has sought to divide us. To potentially divide us over a number of different issues, right? And yet, here is what unites us. What unites us is our brokenness, our woundedness, and that we have been set free by Jesus. That's what unites us. We've been looking at characters in the Gospel of Luke who are lonely, hurting and struggling, searching. Today, we're going to look at the strange story of how Jesus heals and saves a demon-possessed man. And at first glance, you may think, how does that relate to us? How does that relate to Christmas? Well, as we're going to see, there's a lot we can learn from this story. It has everything to do with us. So if you've got a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. If you don't have one with you, the words will be up there on the screen and back at me. I want to read Luke 8, 26 to 39. Follow along with me. This is the word of God. Then they, the disciples, sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you. Do not torment me, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. 
He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. And now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. And so I want to kind of break up into the story into three parts. Number one, our grave condition. Our grave condition. Number two, Jesus' personal encounter. Jesus' personal encounter. And then number three, the power of a changed life. The power of a changed life. So let's begin with our grave condition. In verse 27, it says again, when Jesus had stepped out onto land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house but among the tombs. And so again, we look at the story of a demon-possessed man and we wonder, what is that all about? I don't even understand. Can that happen even today? And the answer is yes. We could say it like this. The demons inhabited this man. He was a man who no doubt gave himself over to sin and over to the evil one invited the evil one's presence in his life. And sadly, the demons had overtaken this man. And, and we think, well, where are we here in the story? How can we relate? Well, notice he is living among the tombs. We're right there. This whole world is like a big graveyard. Apart from God's sovereign grace, all of us are dead in our sins. Every one of us, what does it mean to be dead in our sins? In Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2, we see Paul say, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So Paul is saying that apart from God's grace, we are dead. Yes, we're still alive physically, able to move, able to talk, able to relate, able to experience emotions. What Paul is speaking about is a spiritual death to where we have no spiritual life in us. We have no desire for God. We have no taste buds for Jesus. 
our affections, apart from God's grace, are for ourselves and for this world. And some of you in this room, you think, well, I don't have very much of a testimony because I hear other people talk about their faith story and how they've come out of all of this. And I've got this boring story where I've just been brought up by Christian parents and I believed in Jesus Christ sincerely as my Lord and Savior. And that's not a big deal. Listen, you were once dead, is what the Bible says. And you had to be made alive spiritually. That's a big deal. That's what the Bible talks about. And all of us can relate to that if we're Christians here this morning. He has brought you out of the graveyard of your sin and made you alive in Jesus Christ. That's a miracle. So you have a story to tell today. Now, Paul says we're not only dead in our sins, but we are under the sway of the enemy, under the prince of the power of the air. Satan works in tandem with our sin. He knows our hearts are already actively in rebellion against God, and he just kind of plays on that, accentuates that, tempts us to continue on in our pride, in our self-centeredness. And yet he's more subtle than we might think. You know, the book of James talks about how Satan is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And sometimes we see the reality of Satan's work. It's like right up in our face. And yet most of the time, the way he works, he's more clever than that. He masquerades as an angel of light. He doesn't even want you to know it's him. He's he's lurking behind looking for ways to deceive you. He is a deceiver. He is a liar. He is a tempter. He he wants to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ to to get you to believe in a a false message, more about you and what you got to do for God. And you know what he's done? He has been dividing the church over small things discouraging us and doing whatever he can to separate us from one another and from Christ himself. And so this man, as he's living among the tombs, is someone whom we can relate to. For a long time, it says, some of us we can relate. For a long time, we've been stuck and we wonder why. It could be that you're still dead in your sins, blinded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and today is the day that Jesus wants to open your eyes to the truth about who you really are and who Jesus really is and to give your life to him. So we are dead like this man. We are among the tombs. Also, this man was in isolation. He doesn't have a home. Such a sad story. He's there. He's just vulnerable. He's... He's without clothes. He's all by himself in the graveyard. And some of us, this Christmas, we feel like we're alone. Some of us, physically, you're at home, and I just want to say you are not alone. God is with you. We are with you. We're praying for you. We love you. But we can often feel it emotionally in here. Like nobody understands what I've gone through. Nobody gets it. Nobody gets what it feels like to be me. 
And, and here's what we do. We, we go on to social media looking for love, looking for encouragement. And when we get the like and we get the comment, mm, that feels good. But when we don't, oh, that feels bad. Because we're riding the wave of social media. We're riding the wave of our feelings instead of the, the truth about who we are, who God has made us to be. You know, this season has brought with it more mental health issues. Some of you are dealing with the darkness of depression. Some of you deal with and, and battle with anxiety and worry. Some of you in this room, you have an addiction to alcohol. You're in bondage to pornography, and you're not sure how to get out of it. And you're feeling like you're all alone in isolation, yet you're trying to be strong. You're trying to hold it all together. And this man... He was alone, he was among the tombs, and he had this false perception of power. Mark chapter five, in the parallel passage, emphasizes the demon's strength. In Mark five, it says this, he, this man, lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So again, no one, no one could bind him. No one had the strength to subdue him. Mark highlights the demon's strength for a couple reasons. One, he wants to show it in comparison to Jesus' superior strength, as we're going to see. Another reason, I think, is to show that he's only hurting himself with his own strength. He's only hurting himself with this supposedly, this strength that he has. And we can do the same. In our culture today, we have this false view of power We see it in our country, it's uplifted. The, the, the power and, and the pride to, to know what to do and, 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 the, and the arrogance and the self-centeredness. And, and we can have the same view. This, this is what it means to have power. We need to have it. And we need to have more strength and to hold ourselves together and, and believe that, that we can do this. In the book of Second Chronicles, it contrasts two different kings. One, King Jehoshaphat, the other, a King Uzziah. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, it speaks of this huge multitude, this army that's appro approaching King Jehoshaphat and his people, and what does this king do? In verse 3, it says, Then Jehoshaphat was afraid. Really? You're a king, and you're afraid of this army? He admitted his weakness, and yet in the same breath, he was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So here's what he's doing. I'm afraid. I'm not even sure what to do, but I'm going to set my face toward you, and I'm going to get everybody else to do the same thing. That, that's a leader that we need. Right? That's the kind of leader we need, who's willing to admit his weakness and to rely upon Jesus and others. Notice how he prays in verse 12. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's one of my go-to prayers. I don't know what to do, 
but my eyes are on you. I don't know how this is all going to work out, but my eyes are on you. This is the power of, of weakness. And yet, in contrast, we see this king in 2 Chronicles 26, King Uzziah, where it's said of him in verse 15, in his fame spread far. This, this man was incredible. I mean, he had it all. His army was huge, lots of money. He was successful. But notice what happens. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. So the lie that we're given by the enemy is that we've got to be famous, we've got to be known, we've got to have this power and this strength on our own. It only leads to our destruction. And so this man was dealing with this deadness. He was among the tombs. He was isolated and all alone. And he was dealing with this false sense of power just like us. We're all susceptible to this, pride and self-centeredness instead of brokenness and weakness. I think of the ultimate contrast, uh, Jesus and, and Satan. I mean, Jesus wasn't like Satan who said, I want to go up, up, up. I want to be like the most high. He wanted to elevate himself. And Jesus says, I'm going to go down, 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 and I'm going to die on a cross. That was the difference in their view of life. Jesus, when he came here, he totally disrupted the pattern of this world. In Luke chapter 1, 51 to 52, we see Mary praying, praising God, the magnificent, where she writes in Luke 1, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Jesus flipped the script. His strength was found as we come to him in weakness. Some of you might think, though, this, this looks to be a power encounter, right? I mean, like, here's Jesus coming and meeting a man with demons. Who's going to win? You know? Like, we think this is like some cosmic duality, this celestial boxing ring. And, and some of you, you watch UFC Fight Night. I, I've never watched that before. It looks way too violent. Um, but many people do, this, this whole martial arts kickboxing kind of thing. And, and it's got the tail of the tape, this fight card with stats. And some of you think, well, here's, here's Satan, here's Jesus. Who's going to win? And they're going up against each other. I just want you to know that that is not what's happening here in this world. I mean, you, you can see it here in the story. that The demons, they're afraid of him. They have to ask him permission this is, this is no comparison. Like every demon is subject, subject to him. Jesus is the reigning undefeated champ. You can put him in a ring with anybody. There's no contest, no comparison here. And yet, yet some of us, we're, we're more inclined to like the, uh, the, the baby Christmas Jesus. 
because he's just kind of the sweet little Jesus who stays in the manger kind of at a distance and doesn't disrupt my life. He's not this warrior king Jesus who comes in and says, I am Lord over everything. Bow to me, live your life for me. But this is not mainly a power encounter. I think it's more of a personal encounter. Notice what he asks this man in verse 30. What is your name? What is your name? Remember when God came to Adam in the garden and said, where are you? What have you done? He was asking this man's name because this man had forgotten his identity. Nobody cared about this man. They had written him off. They were either angry at him or afraid of him. And Jesus says, I want to know your name. Our names are important to us. When someone misspells it or pronounces it wrong, it gets our attention. Um, Four years ago, my family and I, we were on vacation and we were in the airport and we went up to Starbucks to get a drink and uh, I think three of us got drinks under my name. And so we were waiting for quite a while. It was really packed in there and so it was a long, long wait. And finally one of the baristas uh, called out, Pony! Pony, and uh, that seemed weird, but nobody was coming to get their drinks, and so uh, my wife turned to Emmy and said, why don't you go up there and see if that's one of our drinks, because she was getting kind of annoyed at how long everything was taken, so was I. So she went up there, Emmy, and sure enough, it was one of our drinks, and Emmy was, I think, kind of embarrassed, because her name's evidently not Pony, right, and yet she still grabbed the drink, and she came back to us and showed us what was on the cup. So you see what happened, right? Somebody in their haste wrote down my name, Doug, looked a lot like Pony, and then the other barista yelled out Pony because he saw Pony. (laughs) When someone gets your name wrong, you notice, means something to you, right? Especially if it's an animal. That's a little weird. But Jesus wanted to know this man's name, to treat him like a real person, not an animal, not a demon, not a lost cause. And you can have a new name, I think is what he wanted to say. You can have a new identity. See, when Jesus asked him his name, he didn't know who he was anymore. It was like he was saying, there is no name. We are legion. Which refers to a Roman military unit of up to 5,000 people. What we're going to learn later on is that evidently there must have been maybe 2,000 demons that entered these pigs it was as if the demons now were speaking for this man. And guys, we, we live in a demon-haunted world with just this cluster of voices, this cacophony of voices in our culture that is just kind of suffocating us with lies, and deceiving us. The voices of our angry culture under the influence of the, the devil breeding anger and disruption and division and convincing us You don't have an identity. You're all alone. Jesus comes to this man. He comes to you and says, I can free you from all that. I want to give you a new name, a new identity, and I want to bring you into a new family to pull you out of the pain and give you lasting security. I can do that. Guys, we long to belong in this room. We long to belong not only to Jesus, but to a community to a family who loves us and forgives us, who bears with our burdens and sticks with us even when it's hard. I think of today and how we 
welcomed new members into our body, into our family, people who move from attending to belonging. We need that. We, we desperately need that. I think about even the story of the Grinch, you know, and how he was looking down below at the Who's in Whoville after he had taken everything away from them, and they were still singing. COVID has taken a lot of things away. Are you still singing? Are you part of a family who loves you? I saw a stat recently that said the only group of people to see improvement in mental health in 2020 are those who attended worship services weekly with their church family. Guys, we need this. We're made for this, to gather together as a family, to belong. So Jesus pursues this man personally, and in the process calls the the demons out of this man and into these pigs. And some of you are thinking, well, why the pigs? I kind of feel sorry for the pigs. I kind of feel sorry for the owner of the pigs. I mean, that's a lot of bacon, right? I mean, he lost a lot of money over this. And so why did this happen? And I think there's a few possibilities. We don't know for sure, but here's a few possibilities. One, these were no doubt pagan people in a Gentile area who were raising pigs in this lucrative business, and they didn't care a lick about God whatsoever. So this could have been a form of of judgment in that respect. Secondly, and I think this is even more important, I think this was a prelude to a future coming judgment where Jesus was going to cast all the demons into the abyss, into the lake of fire forever. So this was a picture of what was going to come. And then thirdly, I think Jesus does this to show the infinite worth of this man's soul. Think about this. 2,000 pigs running over a cliff, but one soul freed from Satan and from sin. I think of the line in O Holy Night, till he appears and the soul felt its worth. I wonder even this morning, if, if Jesus is saying to one of you, you are worthy of my love. You're not alone. You might think that nobody cares. Nobody knows you. I know you, Jesus says, and I'm coming for you. I care about you. This man was written off. Nobody thought there was... There was anything that anybody could do, and yet Jesus didn't forget about him. He came after him. So how does the story end? Well, it ends with the power of a changed life. That's how it ends. The power of a changed life. Look at verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. So notice the reaction, first of all, from the townspeople. I mean, they were freaked out. What's going on here? Who is this mysterious man, and what did he just do? I think they were caring more about what they lost economically than what they could have gained spiritually. What just happened to all the pigs? 
what is he doing disrupting our lives? Get him out of here. They were begging for Jesus to leave, and guess what? He did. That's a scary thought. There may be somebody listening out there today who's like, you know what? Whenever I've so-called, you know, asked Jesus for help, my life keeps getting worse. And you're wanting to use Jesus in your life to get you what you really want, to move your life along. And he hasn't come through for you, so you're like, why am I even bothering with him? Careful. He'll give you over to your desires. He will leave. And in hell, he will never, ever come back. Now, in contrast to the townspeople, this man who was healed from demons, notice his reaction. He's begging to be with Jesus. They were begging him to leave. He's saying, Jesus, I want to be with you. I want to get in that boat to be with you and the disciples. You notice he's in his right mind now. He's clothed. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. This is a posture of a disciple. I mean, this is radical transformation that has happened in his life. He just wants to be with Jesus. Can you blame him? I would. I'd want to jump in the boat. I'm ready to follow you, Jesus. Who can blame him? And yet Jesus says, no. I want you to return home and proclaim what God has done for you. So let's think for a minute, what has God done for this man through Jesus, and what has he done for us? Theologically, this is what he's done. In Hebrews 2.14, it says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So, Listen, this is interesting. Ironically, Christ's death for us took away the power of death from Satan. This was his substitutionary death for us on the cross. We deserve to die this way. He took our place. This is why he shared in our flesh and blood so that he could die. That's why he came at Christmas. To die the death we deserved In Colossians 2.15, it says he disarmed. I love this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's all the demons. And put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So get this, get this. This is amazing. Satan thought, I'm going to kill him. And Jesus is like, I'm going to take that weapon that you used against me to shove it in your face, Satan, and to destroy all your works. And to defeat the power that you have over my people. He put them to open shame so that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So guys, listen, whatever the enemy has thrown into your way, God uses against him now, testifying of the grace and power of Jesus in your life. But I want to end with this question. What would you think if you were that man being told now to return home and to tell how much God has done for you. That may have been hard for this man. I mean, to go back to the town that had put him in a box where he had this reputation. Aren't you the the, the naked guy, the crazy, insane guy over there in the graveyard? Why would I want to go back to the town where I was a laughingstock, where people hated me? But listen... And some of you can relate to this because you have been converted by Jesus Christ. Your life has changed. Your life has been transformed. And you're not sure if you want to go back into the the community of lost people that you were 
involved with. But listen, this is where the power of a changed life can make the greatest impact. Not in your anonymity, but in the people who knew you all along who can now see a change in your life. Guys, listen, if your life has not changed since you became a Christian, you got to wonder if you're really the real deal, all right? Because your life is going to change, and you're going to rub shoulders with people, and they're going to see something different about you, and they're going to wonder, what is going on with you? And you can tell them about the hope that you have in Jesus now. This is what God came to do for us, to free us so that we could go back and to free others. You're part of a new family now with a new Message of hope, return, Jesus says. And so this week I asked on email, what has Jesus done for you? And and many of you replied, and I want you to just listen for a moment, all right? Just listen for a few minutes as you hear testimony after testimony after testimony of what Jesus has done in people's lives here. Listen, Phil McLarnon, Jesus has given me sobriety. There's no question in my mind that he wanted me to quit. I need him with me every day to help me. Teresa Lewis, I praise Jesus for his deliverance. Only by his grace am I able to be thankful and free of the bondage of sexual sin. I thank God that I was delivered and found purity through Christ. Jeff Johnson, Jesus has helped and allowed me to accept love from others. We may not deserve the love, but we can embrace it. Anonymous, I was addicted to pornography for 12 years, and about a year ago, Christ freed me from these chains. Jess Putri, I have been set free from my fear of my children being sick. My fear of their illness had almost complete control of me and how I was living my life. I was anxious and sat around, almost calculated in my head when they would be sick next. With the amazing grace of Jesus, I can finally say I'm free of that fear and can enjoy life more. Gina Vincent, Jesus saved my marriage. Instead of needing my spouse to solve all my anxieties, I pray through them. Instead of my peace, depending on how good my marriage is that day, my peace is with Jesus. Liz Dent, Jesus has freed me from my crippling anxiety. It no longer dictates how I live, and I finally feel the sufficiency of his grace for me. Mike Peterson, in this madness, Jesus has increased my patience. Anonymous, when conflicts come up at work, a lot of times the conflicts are situational but can get personal. So many times I pray that it would work out and for wisdom, and I've seen something unexpected happen and how Jesus helped me through it. Diane Bohan, life comes with many challenges, the least of which are physical. It is during these times that Jesus walks right there beside me, supporting me and drawing me so much closer to him because of those challenges. Joan Guderian, Jesus has helped me not to be so offended and to see that this is an opportunity to be his light. Also that when I am offended, it's still about me. It's so freeing. Olivia Rankin, Jesus has shown me how to see through all the ugly to the good and everything and everyone. He has taught me what real love and joy is and how to spread it to, to others so that others may find that same love and joy. Elaine Schultz, Jesus taught me humility, took away my desire to control my spouse and my children. What joy and what peace and what a relief. Thank you, Lord. Chris and Marla Raymakers, Jesus rescued Marla from attempting suicide and helped Chris retain his job. Jesus saved our marriage and gave us a more loving relationship with all four of our children. Diane Haverly, Jesus has guided me through difficult situations that I've encountered in my life and has helped me to learn to put my trust and faith in him. He's taught me to be thankful for my many blessings. Char Lager, Jesus made known his truth to my skeptic heart. Among them was that he truly loves and cares for us personally, which was something I often secretly wasn't entirely convinced of. Paul Lager, Jesus has given me the confidence to be involved with teaching and has shown me ways to apply and understand the Bible in my life. Jennifer Savory, Jesus freed me from worry. 
Instead of wasting time worrying about what might be, I take comfort in knowing what will be. All that happens is outside of my control and all a part of God's plan. And Zenil, Jesus has helped me to have a more thankful heart and be confident that God is working things out for my good and answering my prayers. Karen Keithley, my tendency is to be fearful and worrisome in the midst of difficult situations. The perfect love of Jesus helps me find rest in him and provides peace. Ron Lanning, Jesus gave me the opportunity to witness to my mother before she passed away on August 25th, and she accepted Jesus into her heart. I will be forever grateful. Anonymous, Jesus has forced me to slow down and be more in his word, to drown out the heavy of the world and what I cannot control, but to focus more on his truth. Jill Fagan, Jesus has helped me get in the word and pray and talk to God, which helps me to get in touch with my feelings more in a positive way, which helps me with my shame and anger and other emotions, which can drive me away from others. Kathy Beach, Jesus has loved me through the pain of losing loved ones this summer that I was not ready to let go of and continues to make his presence so real to me. Brennan Fair, Jesus has given me an indescribable peace and assurance of my salvation. He's changed me to no longer be afraid of who I am. I no longer feel like I have to pretend to be someone I'm not when I'm around certain groups or look for the approval of others. He has created a new identity within me, and that's enough. Carrie Spellmeyer, Jesus has shown me how to extend grace to others by the grace he's given me. I don't expect perfection from other people or myself anymore. Praise Jesus for these stories, these testimonies. This is what Jesus has come to do for you this Christmas. He's come to free you from Satan's power. And he's come to call you back into the community, to return to your home and declare how much Jesus has done for you. Listen, you're a changed person. You're still a mess. You're still broken. You're still wounded. But you're a changed person who's been set free by Jesus. God has saved you. Listen, God has saved you and pulled you out of the graveyard of your sin and now says to go back and pull others out. Never forget that and never forget what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray together. Jesus, we bow before you as Lord. You are the king. And you stooped down low to save us from our sin and to save us from Satan's power. I pray if there's one even now that is wondering, questioning, am I really a Christian? That you would grant them even now in this moment new eyes to see. Take off the blinders. Help them to see right now the light of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ who came to save them and to rescue them as a sinner and to give them new life. I pray, Lord, that you would be working in the hearts of those who may even right now be struggling with some kind of secret sin, that you would help them to bring that into the light and to get help. Lord, we're grateful that even this little baby, this humble baby that we celebrate at Christmas is the king of all kings and Lord of all lords, and he reigns even now, seated at the right hand of God, and he has saved us. So may we declare it, this good news, this Christmas, to those who need it most, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.